I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. The American experiment, as we fondly call it, is unique in many ways, including the proposition that you can be of any background and originate from any country on Earth and become as American as anyone else. So as we continue to become more racially and ethnically diverse than ever before, and our definition of what it means to be an American changes, how do we widen our tribe to include everyone who arrives, while maintaining something of a shared narrative? Our guest this week offers his thoughts on the future of American identity and what it means for the meaning of diversity. Zed Jelani is a freelance journalist who has previously worked for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, The Intercept, and the Center for American Progress. He currently co-hosts the YouTube show, The Back Channel. Zed, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be here. So why I wanted to have you as one of the first guests on the podcast is you've done a lot of fantastic writing on issues of race and identity for publications including Tablet Magazine, Greater Good Magazine, Arc Digital, and Quillette. And funny enough, I find that you do also a lot of your best work on Twitter, rebutting and responding to a, a rather exclusionary, racialized style of thinking that seems ascendant in certain influential corners of the left, which I'd love to discuss more in depth with you in a bit. There were a thousand reasons that I could have had you on, but there was one tweet from late July specifically, a response to another tweet by Thomas Chatterton Williams that provided the inspiration for our chat today. You wrote, for many centuries, people in the subcontinent would fight and die for their tribes, force their children to only marry within them, only hire within tribal boundaries, live in tribal clusters. Now I literally don't remember what tribe I am in most days. It's great. So I was hoping that to start off and to sort of frame our conversation, you could talk about your family history and your own experiences growing up in the Deep South as a Pakistani-American. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question in that I think that my experience was very similar to that, I think, of many people who are either first-generation or second-generation Americans. So that means either you're uh, someone who emigrated to the United States or you're the child of someone who emigrated to the United States, uh, which I'm in the second category because I was born in the U.S. Uh, my parents both came from Pakistan. My mom and dad actually are both from Karachi, which is the city in the south, kind of on the ocean. It's a coastal city. Uh, there is a big area of the city called Defense because it's where the Navy was uh, typically stationed. And yeah, so coming from that environment to the United States, I think was quite of a culture shock for them. Uh, but they were there in the 70s, and I wasn't born until 1988. So that means that it was kind of interesting growing up in that pattern because it meant that my parents, they still had some cultural, a lot of cultural attributes actually from where they came from. And so growing up in Georgia, which is where I was born, uh, having kind of in many ways an all-American childhood, but having this kind of Pakistani culture laid on top of it kind of gave me an insight into, I think, differing kind of cultural attitudes about how people think about themselves in terms of how they identify uh, the tribes that they're part of the religious customs they they enjoy and partake in and i think there's actually a term for this now i've heard it a few times it's called third culture so like you know your parents are from one culture you're raised in another culture you're not really a part of one, either one like i couldn't fully say that like i'm have like a prototypical American mindset. I couldn't really say I have a Pakistani mindset, but maybe I have a little bit of a mix of both of them, having been raised and immersed in both sides of it. Um, so yeah, it, it was very much of a third culture type childhood. But part of that was like growing up in the 90s and like American like diversity culture at that point, 
I think a lot of what we were taught was like, basically that everybody is equal, that yeah, we have differences, but those differences don't really define you necessarily. You you choose who you are. Um, it was, you know, it's very like 90s PSA culture where, you know, there'd be a 30 second ad that says, you know, don't judge someone by their skin color, you know, welcome everybody, you know, television shows like Captain Planet were very popular, where you have like classical multiculturalism, people of different cultures working together and working past their boundaries. So I think I was very immersed in that culture at the same time, understanding that like my parents and a lot of my extended family and friends came from either Pakistan or India. And they had a culture, I think, that emphasized kind of their I guess uh, in psychology, sometimes they call it tighter cultures, like social psychologists would call it a tighter culture because it's a culture that's more rigid, has more rules, formalities, rituals, customs, and it's very important to to keep to those. And I think that there are a wide range of sort of uh, definitions and boundaries that you stay in when you're in the culture in India or Pakistan. So like one instance is like our new uh, vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side as Kamala Harris. Uh, her mother gave an interview with, I believe it was the San Francisco Weekly, it was some some Bay Area paper in 2003, where she was explaining that she has a thousand year bloodline going back from that family name, right? And how they've always kept that bloodline. Uh, they're Brahmin, which is the highest caste in classical traditional Indian culture. And it was very important for them to keep to that, right? Uh, but when she came to the United States, she married out of that. You know, she married Donald Harris, who's uh, Kamala Harris is still living father and he comes from a Jamaican background. Uh, so she kind of broke like a thousand year kind of taboo, right? Uh, particularly if you're a Brahmin in India, because that's the highest caste, it's the highest group of people, it's considered the most elite group, you're supposed to marry within that group, uh, marry within this kind of bloodline. And when you break out of that, it's like a gigantic taboo. It's the kind of thing that like, you know, a lot of people over there would really frown upon. Um, and I think that's part of why her family is viewed as progressive, because it's it's a big thing to take that step to actually marry not only outside your caste, not only outside like your nationality uh, and your religion. Uh, you know, it's like marrying across such a gigantic divide. You know, in that way, Kamala Harris's mother was was quite of a rebel, even though um, she probably wasn't progressive in all things, given the fact that she came from such a high caste in India and she was she had a very late background. I think she graduated from college when she was like nineteen. She had her like PhD from Berkeley at twenty five, and so she was an extremely high performer pushed Kamala very hard. I think in, in those senses, she was probably very traditional, but the fact that she was able to marry outside these all these tribal boundaries um, suggested that she was actually somewhat progressive. And I think it's just, it's hard to conceptualize for Americans because I think America overall is a very open culture. It's, it's a place where people are not only marrying across social and cultural lines, but people like to experience other kinds of cultures, right? Like you know, if you're a typical middle class American family, you might like to go out and eat Mexican. You might be listening to music from another part of the world. You're probably watching foreign films occasionally. Like it's a part it's a culture where we kind of enjoy and embrace difference and like going across these lines and having those lines be fluid. But in many parts of the world, they're very, very tight. And I think what I had mentioned in the post that you had brought up was that it's it's in many parts of the world, it's not very fluid. It's very, very tight. These tribes are considered very, very binding. Uh, so, for instance, like there's an organization in India called the Love Commandos. And, you know, it's like it, it's, a, it's a weird name. I don't know if anyone's listening, right? What, what you'd be thinking, what you would associate or guess what that organization does. But basically what the Love Commandos does is it finds people who are trying to marry for love across some kind of boundary that they're not allowed to. I mean, they're, it's not illegal. Like in India, you, in India and Pakistan, you can marry wherever you want. Like it's not, it's not, an, it, it's not a matter of the law. It's a matter of social custom. Like there may be somebody who wants to marry across the caste line. There may be somebody who wants to marry 
somebody who's from a different tribal or linguistic group. There may be somebody who just wants to marry for love, but they were arranged to marry somebody else, maybe since they were kids or something. What this organization does is it helps these people kind of like hide and get married and being able to have their love, protecting them in a physical manner, because sometimes people are hurt or killed for doing that. Like it's a regular thing. I wouldn't say it's necessarily accepted or encouraged, but it's it's common enough to where you'll hear about it. And it's common enough to where an organization like this has to exist because that kind of very strong, kind of tight knit culture is just very, very prevalent in that part of the world. And, you know, I think the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt talks about this. He didn't really understand like conservative thinking until he went and studied in India. Like he was a liberal his entire life for decades and decades. Grew up a secular Jewish guy, had all the liberal beliefs. He didn't really understand, I think, the type of thinking until he went to India. Because in India, I think much of the way that you conceptualize the good of society is about the good of groups, right? It's not about the individual. Like their frame of reference or analysis is really not about an individual person. It's about like, what are you doing for your family? What are you doing for your town? What are you doing for your religious group? What are you doing for your country? The idea that you should just go and marry whoever you want, no matter what, is like, it's, it would be considered a very selfish or individualistic idea. Like, you're not really looking out for your group. Um, you're, you know, just like uh, Kamala Harris's mother, I think she probably felt a lot of pressure not to break that 1,000 year pure bloodline that um, the, the family name and the Brahmin caste. It's just an entirely different way of thinking about the world. And I think that. What Thomas Charrington Williams is trying to warn against in the American context or in the Western context, he lives in Paris, but he's born and raised in America. I think what he's trying to warn against in his project is just this idea that race would be an autocratic category where like you're born into it, you can't change it, you have to stick with it. There are certain rules and customs that are defined for you that you have to adhere to very strongly. And that if you run afoul of any of these, you commit a grave sin you're an outcast, you've uh, violated a taboo. I think that's what he's trying to warn against. I don't think that, yeah, I think some people misunderstand what, what he's doing with his work. He's not arguing that there's no such thing as culture or tradition. I mean, Thomas is someone who has written very beautifully, I think, about how he really appreciates a lot of African-American culture, traditions, history, how he's been enmeshed in so much of that growing up. I believe his previous book, before the one that he wrote just now, was about his childhood and talks quite a bit about that. I talked about it a little bit in the most recent book as well. But he's arguing that, you know, when we're talking about race, we're often accidentally talking about culture or accidentally talking about like social class, like, you know, economic class, those kind of things. And those are those are real things that, of course, we grapple with that help define us, so on and so forth. But when we're talking about by the classical definition of race really was like skin color and blood. Right. Neither of which, at least in the contemporary Western liberal thinking, really should be defining anything about you. Uh, you know, you shouldn't feel indebted to behave a certain way, to associate with a certain group of people, to discriminate or any of that based on like bloodline and skin color. Although those things have been much more powerful in the past in American history. Like, for instance, the reason we have the categories in the American context is because they were kind of reverse engineered to justify slavery. Because when the United States was being founded, there was a heavy, heavy reliance on like indentured uh, servitude and labor. And Many of the people who are subject to that, we would consider them to be white today. Like we would say, hey, those are, those are white people basically being treated like slaves. Uh, but then when the African, the transatlantic slave trade kind of booted up and it was seen as the kind of best way for people to get that labor that could subsidize their industry, they kind of had to justify doing this basically to people of African descent. And so that's how they kind of created the white black dichotomy. 
they suggested that this, you know, whiteness and blackness define someone's character, define how they think, define their physical attributes, define their biology. And I think ever since that happened, we've been we've been trying to deconstruct those categories the other way, say that actually this was just either just categories created out of thin air. They don't even define real populations. Like I think I remember reading in a biology book by Robert Sapolsky that like maybe there's two or three percent DNA like overlap between like african-americans and people from the african continent it's not even like a not even really like a real biological category like there's actually more variation of like dna and so on and so forth within racial groups than between them so it's you know we've been trying to reverse engineer kind of these categories to point out they don't really make a whole lot of sense um and i think that's that's one of the revelations thomas had when he had his daughter because his wife comes from a european background white european background he, of course, is biracial. And then when he has his daughter, he finds that she's very fair skinned. Uh, she's very white looking. And he decides that he is not going to try to define who she is by bloodline or skin color. You know, she's going to define who she is based on her experiences, what she likes to do, the culture she feels capable and worthy of embracing. And I think that was a real change in his thinking, because if you go back oh, a few years, and I wrote a, when I reviewed this book for The Guardian in, in a column, I I point this out. If you roll back the clock a few years before he had his daughter, he wrote, I believe it was in the New York Times, or maybe another paper, an op-ed saying that he and his daughter will be black. He imagined that she has to be black because this is the cultural lineage and has a responsibility to define her that way. But once she's actually born, he just, it, you know, something in him just clicked and he decided that actually, you know, she is going to get to decide to be who she wants to be. There's no reason to define her in an autocratic manner, and autocratic would mean that, you know, it would be fixed, unchangeable, uh, defined for her rather than her defining it for herself. Reading his work, I think, has been the closest I've felt to kind of relaying the experience of people who are kind of from a third culture background like me are experiencing because I kind of felt like I had to choose my way. You know, I had to choose what aspect of what culture I wanted to embrace. It wasn't really chosen for me, right? Like, I it, when you're in the, in this weird space where you're like, you know, you're part of a, a family that's trying to integrate to the United States, you're born here, they're born there, you're getting conflicting ideas about norms and values and totems and cultures, you kind of have to choose, you know, you have a little bit of a, there will be people who will try to push you in one way or another, but you still have a little bit of choice. And I think what he's saying is that everybody should be thinking about it that way. You know, we should stop this idea that we should be forcing people into identifications in a way that was ultimately in the United States anyway, was used to just try to justify slavery. You know, there, there's no reason to continue to use that exact racial categorization system, particularly at a time when I think something like, I want to say around a fifth of people are getting intermarried or may, probably a little bit less than a fifth. Um, we're going, we're having so much, you know, people are not siloed the way that uh, it, it's not, it's not the Jim Crow South, right? It's not the pre- loving the Virginia days where racial mixing was not allowed, right? Now, now everyone's getting mixed up. Everyone is part of every culture, more or less, right? Like every, like I know people who come from backgrounds that are European that are like obsessed with Japan, right? And like, you know, maybe they've learned Japanese. Like I, I uh, when I was in grad school, I sat in on a Hindi class. The Hindi class was taught by like a white dude who grew up in the West Indies and who happened to have no like perfect Hindi just because of where he grew up because there were a lot of people from Indian background who happened to be in that uh, area. And so it's becoming, a, it's a, actually a much more complicated and to me, it's a much more beautiful world than the one where people were selected into these kind of racial categories told this is who you stick with, this is what you stay with, this is what defines you. 
which really was the closest America ever had to an actual caste system. I don't think America, it was quite a caste system, but I think the Jim Crow era, the era between you know the end of enslavement through Jim Crow era, that was the closest thing America had to a caste system. I mean, there was there was even a law, I believe, in Alabama at one point that said that if you're a black person and a white person, you can't play checkers together. Like, I don't know why it was so specific. I don't know if someone like really racist just happened to see someone playing checkers together. And I was like, man, we got to We got to stop that. You know, we have to be a law specifically around that. But like, you know, it resembled the closest thing I could imagine to what a caste system, uh, how it operated in India before it was outlawed or how some people still even though it's outlawed in India, some people still kind of adhere to it just uh, informally or socially. The ascendant racial thinking that we're seeing in some elite corners, it's almost like it's almost reactionary, right? It's almost like a reaction to the, the idea that all these lines have been scrambled for the past, like, I don't know, four or five, six decades. People are trying to reconstruct something that was already kind of in the process of being deconstructed. Um, and that's why I think kind of the theories that Thomas Sharkton Williams is proposing, I think those are kind of where we're going. Um, even if it does, even if there is like a, some people are going to be kicking and screaming, getting dragged into that feature, it kind of seems like the direction we will eventually end up. Simply because at the end of the day, like very thick categories around race just don't make a whole lot of sense. Like they don't, they don't just, they just don't follow logically the same way I think with gender. Like I think it's becoming a more commonly accepted idea that gender is a spectrum like if there is such a thing as like there are people who identify as women men and women but there are also like you know people who don't fit neatly into the category don't want to and like yeah that's fine like respect that uh, i think race will break down is breaking down the same way and so even though there is a very strong kind of reactionary push right now to prevent that those categories from being broken down i i, I imagine that it's going in that in that direction over the long run yeah, I think that's right. And something you mentioned earlier kind of stuck with me because I think there is a parallel between William's experience when he first began dating his now wife, who I believe uh, is from France. And when he was trying to explain the concept of race in the American context to her, it was like he was talking to an alien, like her understanding of what he was trying to articulate. The idea seemed so foreign to her. And it made me remember something you wrote about how uh, someone even understanding or being able to relate to in America to Kamala's mother's caste placement would seem totally alien and foreign to an American. And it, it's only when you go abroad or when you travel to another country and see how other communities or how other nations are categorized that your own categorizations, which you took as truth which you took as the one true way that we should categorize human beings, for, you know, for good or for ill, only then do those things start to seem absurd. I think there's a very strong, like, desire for people to engage in social categorization to begin with. You know, like, our minds want to make the world simpler for very understandable reasons, because the reality is that the world is super complicated and that if we couldn't make any generalizations in our mind, it would be almost impossible to go about like life in a society. So for instance, like if I'm going to go visit Seattle in like March or April, you know, I'll probably make sure to get an umbrella when I get there or bring an umbrella because I've made the assumption in my mind that Seattle is a rainy city, the rainy season, I should probably bring one. Or, you know, you might see a dog or a cat and you, you know, your, your mind instantly categorizes the animal you're seeing as a dog or a cat based on some features that you've, memorize and 
the thought of that's a dog and a cat. Like there's a lot of times when we make these small assumptions and categorizations in our mind instantly to try and simplify the world. Or like if I have a friend who's, who's an Orthodox Jew and, you know, probably shouldn't take him out for like, you know, bacon or, or you know, bacon wrapped shrimp or whatever. Like there are some reasons why we, we had this categorizing process in our minds, right? Like it's not completely irrational or useless. Uh, I think the problem comes is when we're making these categorizations in ways that make false assumptions about people or that like box people into some kind of social reality that they don't really want to be in. Uh, I think for a long time, this was an issue with the topic of marriage. Um, I think for a long time, people conceived of marriage as one way, one very like, you know, specific arrangement. People who didn't fit that arrangement were not allowed to get married. And in this, in this case, I'm talking about people who are gay or lesbian. Uh, I think we had to redefine that category in a way that allowed people who really wanted to be part of it to join it in a way that they hadn't been able to join it since the establishment of the United States uh, or longer. So. I think when it comes to these categories, it's going to be somewhat unsettling to people when they are scrambled somewhat. I think Thomas Chatterton Williams writes in his book about how like his father tells him, his father who married a white woman, because Thomas Chatterton Williams is always biracial, his, his father still has some skepticism about like white people, right? And like his father grew up in like a Jim Crow era America with much more discrimination and prejudice than there is today. I think in the back of his mind, he still had uh, this, these experiences with people who, who happened to be white, and he was still defining them that way. And I think part of what made it easier for Thomas to break down these categorizations is that he just grew up in an America that wasn't enforcing them as much, right? Like, if you're not going to go to jail for playing checkers with somebody who looks a certain way, right? Like, you're probably much less likely to think that's so important or so defining uh, as it as it is. So I think there is a real kind of reason why we've had these categorizations for so long. Uh, there's a reason why I think if you look at the polling, uh, I'm trying to remember who does this polling. It might, it's either Pew or Gallup, but they do polling asking people like, how important is your race to you? And I think for the majority of whites, Asians, and Latinos, it's not very important for most of them. For African Americans, I think it's significantly more important, or it tends to be when you look at the polling. And, you know, I think I don't think that's that's a complete, you know, mystery. For many years, we had generations of people who, for their skin color, were constantly grouped into one category. Uh, They were either legally discriminated against or informally discriminated against. You know, this was a massive deal in their lives. So it's not a surprise that so many people took that and said, "Okay, well, I'm going to make that a defining characteristic of my life because I have no choice. Other people are doing it for me anyway. Uh, it's not a surprise, for instance, that there were gay pride parades all over America. There was a gay pride movement, you know, that um, Harvey Milk said that you need to come out of the closet and be proud about it because everyone else was making such a stigmatized category. You did, you were really bound by it. You you had to kind of embrace it just for your own self-esteem, right? Um, so I, you know, I don't think it was a surprise that, that so much of that happened. But I think in a more complicated world, especially where a lot of those barriers are being removed, and where there's less reinforcement, that these categories do tend to kind of melt away. We we go back to my tweet that you had referenced. I you know I don't think about the fact that I'm, for instance, Bihari. Bihari is like the cultural, tribal, or linguistic group. Um, it's actually based out of India, even though my parents are from Pakistan, because my grandparents traveled from India to Pakistan during the partition uh, during migration. Um, so you know I don't think about that very much because nobody nobody references me by that. No one talks about it. 
Um, there are people for whom that's a very, very important category in their entire lives. They're self-defining themselves that way. They're hanging out with other people of that category. They're marrying within that category, hiring, working, doing their social activities. There are plenty of people who, who would do that. And it's the same thing with like Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is from a biracial background. She's a Jamaican father and an Indian American mother. Uh, but I think she presented more as African American during her presidential run because I think that was just the social context that she was in. Like, there's a lot of African American voters in the Democratic primary. I want to say something like 40 to 50 percent of, like, in some, at least in the South or, in, or at least in some of the the East Coast. I think the primary vote was was like that heavily African American. So it made a lot of sense for her to emphasize that. Uh, if you look back to when she was running for district attorney of San Francisco in early 2000s, I think she emphasized the Indian American part of her heritage more because there were more Asians and Indian Americans in the Bay Area of San Francisco in California. So it kind of made more sense to emphasize that and play it up more and embrace it more. Um, so it, it shows you that the categories, you know, they're highly socially constructed. And they're highly contextual. I think if she was in India, she wouldn't even say she would talk about being Indian, but she'd probably also talk about her cultural linguistic group, which is Tamil. If it was a less progressive part of India, she might be talking about being Brahmin. Like you can always zoom in and out of these categories based on the context you're in. You know, they're they're so not fixed that uh, the same person can be defined four or five different ways, even if we are just talking about like purely their their culture or their they're kind of like ethnic or linguistic tribe, uh, as I just demonstrated with Kamala Harris, but it can be done with just about anyone. I mean, it, n none of us are solely fixed to a few of these labels or categories, I think, and particularly as time rolls along. Something Thomas Charlton Williams said that I didn't recognize because I think I'm too young is that like when he was younger, he barely heard the category biracial. For me, it's very normal to hear biracial or to, to know someone who's biracial, to use that word. But apparently, in even if you were about the clock, 30 or 40 years, it was very rare to hear that term. If somebody was had, you know, one black parent, one white parent, they would just be considered black, right? Or if you go back to like the slave era rules, it'd be like called one drop rule. You know, even a little bit of quote unquote black blood would mean that you're black. Now it's much more commonly accepted to accept that people are mixed, they're biracial, and they're more fluid. But that only occurred because we made a conscious effort to recategorize. But it does show that it's socially constructed, right? It's not laws of physics or biology or anything defining these things. And I think you touch on something important, which is one of the few connections that your story um, and, and you not feeling on a day-to-day -day level connected to your Bihari roots in the same way that once Williams moved to France, he began to re-examine his own connection to his Black American roots. Do you feel that there is something that is distinct to the immigrant experience because this this also follows with my own my own Armenian background and my father's European background. It was only after leaving their ancestral homelands and coming to another country that they were able to kind of loosen their grip, right? Like release the tightness that was held around those cultural and ethnic signifiers. Do you think that that creates a particular stumbling block in terms of moving beyond those kind of identitarian classifications for American descendants of slaves, right? Where, where because they have been here um, and their descendants have been here for so many hundreds of years, there is no moving a thousand or two thousand or three thousand or seven thousand miles away to get that distance from what those caste systems or categorization systems were. That is something he talks about because one thing Chad and Williams describes is that 
when he's in France, he no one really ever discriminates against him for being like, you know, African descent, black, so on and so forth. But sometimes he gets confused for being Arab because I guess in their minds they're categorizing somebody who looks like him as maybe being from Algeria or Morocco or Libya or um, you know somewhere in Mediterranean or North Africa. And I think that it is it, it can be much more difficult if you're in a society that's reinforcing that label or category onto you constantly. It's very difficult to just say I'm going to step outside of it because you don't you don't have as much wiggle room to do so. And I. I believe even James Baldwin wrote about this because James Baldwin was another one of the Americans who kind of expatriated from the United States to France. Um, and, you know, Baldwin would talk about how, like, you know, he feels different in France. And I think that that is because the society is not enforcing that categorization onto you. You know, you, you have the you have a little bit of latitude to, like, move around a little bit more and, and to define for yourself. And I think that that gets into, I think, what Chariton Williams talks about, how, like, your identity is a negotiation, right? Like. You can define your, you have some power to define yourself as you want, but the society also has to accept that defining, right? Like, you know, they do studies about, for instance, job discrimination and how, like, if you have like a prototypical or stereotypical, like, African American name, you may have to send out twice as many resumes to get the same number of callbacks or something like that. Or, like, your callback rate is like 50% less. And I think, the highest I've ever seen is for if you have like an Arabic root name. I think it's like twice as hard, even then if you have an African American name to get a callback is what someone found in one study. So like that is all an example of society reinforcing those categories in a way that makes it harder for you to step outside of it. You know, people tend to rise or fall to the expectations set to them by other people. And maybe some very stubborn people will try very hard to step outside that. So like not only Thomas Shadden Williams, but you know, you see Kamel Foster is another guy. Uh, he is with Freethink and he works for the, he has this podcast called The Fifth Column. Uh, he's, he doesn't define himself as black. He says he's not black. But obviously anyone who looks at him anywhere in the United States, they're probably going to, you know, in their mind, they're probably instantly categorizing him in this category, right? And it's, and he just happens to be like a rebellious kind of stubborn guy. Uh, he's very outspoken and he can resist that and say, no, I'm not. Like, that's not how I identify. But if the rest of society is telling most people, with that, with particular skin shades, uh, that they happen to be that thing, it's going to be hard for them to jump out of it. And I think that's what we're seeing with the transgender uh, rights movement, which is that what they're really strongly emphasizing is accepting someone's self-identification, using the pronouns they prefer, using the name they prefer if they've changed their name, because it is a negotiation. It's not just a matter of that person chooses not to identify that way anymore. Everyone else has to accept it, or most people do, right? The negotiation has to take place. If only one side is doing it and it's like, you know, you it's very hard to move past that categorization or that identification. Um, and also, I think with race in particular, we have to be able to separate out culture from that, because I don't think I think there would be a lot of good reasons to not using racial categories or not defining solely by those. But we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater in that there's so much rich and beautiful culture tied to many of these like ethnic and racial backgrounds. Um, but I think we, ha- we would have to be a little somewhat careful because it's not just that, you know, someone from a minority background wouldn't want to, it's not just that they're so attached to this racial category that they're doing it because everyone else calls them, you know, black or brown or white or whatever. But like, there's also a very rich, like cultural and linguistic and historical lineage and heritage. And people don't want to throw all that away. Say, I'm not associated with that. 
But I think that the way that I try to navigate that or handle that is saying that we can separate out race from culture. Like, you know, if you happen to be like, I don't know, if you're white, but you're raised in like Southwest Atlanta or you're in Oakland, there's a really good movie about this called Blind Spotting that kind of gets into this issue a little bit in Oakland. Uh, you can be part of the exact same culture as someone who happens to have black skin color or Latino skin color or whatever in the exact same place because you were raised in that place, you were raised with those values, you were raised with uh, the linguistic traditions you're raised with um, everything, you know, the, the music, the art, the food, you can happen to be in the same culture, even though your skin colors are different. Or if, if the inverse situation happens. And I think that it's somewhat difficult because we, we call things like black culture or Latin culture or white culture. So maybe, I don't know how we're going to navigate it when we attach the race so strongly to the, to the word culture, but I think we, we have to find some ways to like let people in and out of a culture as they see fit um, without defining it by their skin color. Because I don't think people want to, you know, nobody really wants it to be that everybody's just the same. You know, we're all in one culture. There's no difference. There's no difference in language or art or music or food or entertainment. Or We like having those differences. It's just that we don't want the differences to be silos. We don't want them to be an autocratic picture where like you're bound into one just because of where you were born, what you look like. Uh, your ancestors, so on and so forth. I think that's more the problem. And I, I, I look at what's happening with gender and I see a little bit of promising promise there because it gives somewhat of a framework for how we would approach this. Like, right, like if somebody chooses to be part of another culture and adopt those customs and traditions and, uh, you know, become part of that community, we kind of accept it the same way we accept, like, you know, immigrants coming to the United States and becoming Americans, or we would accept someone who's transitioning from one gender to another, like, it gives a little bit of a framework for how we would do that. And I think people do it subtly all the time. Like I, I think, especially if you know any mixed families, like people who married across cultural lines and how they raise their children, you'll see an authentic, like mixed culture that's created that can't be defined just by the skin color or ancestry of one half or another. Uh, we're not great at talking about it because it's kind of a new thing, right? We've had so much segregation in the United States for so long, not only physical segregation, but segregation in our thinking, thinking that, you know, People from one race are, are this way. People from one another quote unquote race are another way. Through the 1990s, if you took a poll, I think the majority of Americans didn't even approve of black white marriage. Like you know, it was like I think in 1994, if you pulled people, like it'd be less than a majority would even approve of people even marrying across those lines, even though there had been decades since it became legal with the Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court decision. So I think it, it's it's taking time, but it is moving in that direction. Just because I think. Once people are freed of like legal restrictions and, you know, you know, the actual violence being used to keep people apart, people end up mixing together. People end up embracing each other's customs, traditions, so on and so forth. So looking back on on how quickly American society went from not accepting to accepting gay marriage, for instance, I think one of the the key and instrumental features of that quick acceptance was proximity, right? I mean, if there were ever a chance that a child of another race could just be born into your family uh, out of nowhere in the same way that you could have a gay daughter or a gay son who is intimately familiar to you, it is much harder to fear or hate or distrust someone who is that intimately connected to you, which I think speaks to the point you were saying, which is that as we continue to intermix and socialize with each other, the differences seem so much less important. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's also a feature of globalization because it used to be that your community was very strictly like who you grew up around. Like, all right, this is my parents, this is my neighbors, this is my friends. Uh, I have a school I go to, eventually I go to work. That was the only way you could make a community, right, was that. 
Now, what is defined as a community is very different because the way you communicate with people is very different. So like you could become obsessed with the culture in Ghana and, you know, have a bunch of friends over there that you Skype with and like, you know, interact with and and that you kind of make into your social circle. Like the way that we communicate with each other is just so much different than it used to be to where it's very hard to see the same lines that would have defined people in the year 1950 define the continue to define them in the year 2020. And I think it did, it worked wonders for things like gay rights and for transgender rights. Uh, and I think it's slowly doing it in, in this dimension as well. I'd like to kind of take us more to the personal and, and kind of take us back to your personal experiences around issues of race and identity. And to kind of set the stage for that, I kind of want to take a moment to explain how uh, I connected with a lot of your work on this subject. Uh, my mother's side of the family is is ethnically Armenian. Uh, they came to the United States about 100 years ago, right after the genocide. And a couple of generations later, my mother was the first in her line, so to speak, to marry a non-Armenian, my father. And so I grew up in a, a suburb in Northern California, and I rarely thought about my Armenianness. And I think this was a feature of both time and distance. Um, time being, you know, I was, uh, gosh, how many generations in at that point? Great grandmother came over here. And then also my mom, my sister and I were the only Armenians we knew in our suburban town. Um, and so growing up, my ethnicity seemed inconsequential, um, as inconsequential as my Italian American friend's ethnicity or my Jewish American friend's ethnicity or my Mexican American friend's ethnicity. Uh, it was like an interesting factoid, like on the underside of a Snapple cap, right? And there were, t- there were like two sort of major events that kind of shook my belief that this, that this sort of existence can be continuously perpetuated and expanded. One was my move to LA and meeting quite a few Armenians who, while on paper were similar to me, seemed quite different culturally. I, I would oftentimes meet each second or even third generation Armenians who'd lived here and whose parents had lived here and whose grandparents had lived here who couldn't even picture marrying outside of their own ethnicity, let's say. And then my second, and I would say more consequential experience uh, that, that sort of made me begin to doubt was when I was in a long-term relationship with a critical race theorist. Initially, it seemed really appealing to me, critical race theory, because it, it, it was touching on a lot of things that are important to me. Social justice, it was anti-discrimination, anti-racism. And there were a lot of things within my first few months of reading about it that I really connected with. And I think it can actually be a very instructive and useful tool when looking backward, right? When looking at history through that lens. Like, it, it turned me on to the, the series of Supreme Court cases in the 1920s that basically adjudicated what whiteness was. There was a whole Supreme Court case on whether Armenians were white or not. There was a Supreme Court case on whether Japanese were white or not, or um, people from India were white or not. And that was very eye-opening. But what it also did was, when I was running in these particular circles, race and ethnicity were at the forefront of almost every single conversation. I would go to parties where I had not met anyone yet, and yet everyone knew I was Armenian because they had been told ahead of time. People would talk about their ethnicity first as if it was the most important feature of their identity. And what one thing that they all shared in common, which looking back kind of now makes sense upon reading some of your articles and, and other articles on the subject, was they were all, with few exceptions, wealthier and more elite educated backgrounds than me. Almost all the people that I met were from Ivy League schools, where I, I, I went to a, a state school growing up. And so watching this ideology, you know, from around 2013, 2014, when I was first personally exposed to it, kind of become mainstreamed over the last four or five years, and especially uh, ascendant in the context of the recent and tragic killing of George Floyd through people like uh, Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo. 
Um, it really began to shake my faith that our kind of classical liberalism, which I think you've spoken so eloquently on, which kind of dominated in the back half of the 20th century ar- around issues of identity, it kind of shook my faith that that is going to survive. And so before we discuss that on a little more depth, I, I just wanted to know, growing up in the, in the Deep South, I, I believe it was uh, Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Did those ideas, which we would now categorize in critical race theory, I don't, although I don't know if it would have been called that in the, the 90s or early 2000s when you were growing up, did those ideas ever appeal to you? Because I can definitely see how they would appeal to people within minority groups. Everyone I met who found critical race theory appealing, there was always an inciting incident or incidents in their lives that made that theory appealing to them. And did you ever come close or did you ever have an experience where you thought about going down that road instead of the one that you're now on? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I wouldn't say the, as a structured theory or as a full-on like way of viewing the world, it super appealed to me, but I think it did give me, you know, when I was younger, maybe a teenager or something, I don't know, if I would watch like, let's say like a Dave Chappelle or a Chris Rock or one of these comedians kind of make jokes about race and stuff, like I think it does, it does like, it gives you a little bit of a, a feeling of righteousness or it gives you a feeling of like, you know, maybe it expiates a little bit of your discomfort that maybe you feel around being around like a majority group sometimes. Like, oh, you might notice, you you might make some categorization or stereotype in your mind about how someone in a majority group is. And it, it can be kind of, a, you know, it can be somewhat fun or entertaining or lighthearted to be able to say, oh, white people are X, Y, and Z, or like, you know, so on and so forth, because it does give you kind of a a subculture that you can kind of belong to, right? Where you have kind of an explanation for like, why is it you don't have certain things or why are certain things awry because of, oh, it's, you know, the white people did this and blah, blah, blah. And like, the fact that I think a lot of white people kind of accepted it and were okay with it just as like, oh, it's just like jokes on the fringe, just no big deal. Um, kind of made it easier to fall into that, I think, when I was that age, because you could get away with it, right? Like you can't really, there aren't a whole lot of groups you can just go get away with like making fun of or like talking trash about. Uh, maybe within your subgroup, you would talk trash about Turkish people. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it would be. Uh, I had I had an Armenian American professor who said they used to do that a lot. Um, but like, yeah, like it's I think everyone likes to have like some group they can just kind of somewhat scapegoat but also somewhat just make jokes about and do it in a lighthearted way um and i think this philosophy kind of licensed people to do this in a more mainstream way that kind of felt like okay or it felt it felt it just felt like you were able to kind of let off some steam by talking that way about people um and so and to that extent it did appeal to me somewhat when i was younger although i didn't really see it as a serious way to organize your politics because then it can get very you know, it's it's one thing when somebody's kind of making jokes, and it's another when people are seriously talking about changing public policy or changing the way that universities or businesses operate based on basically stereotypes about people or assumptions about people based on these things. Um, you know, like like if, well, let's say like a kid or something made a joke about me and it was a little bit mean, or you know, I wouldn't bother me very much. So I'm like, oh, it's just a kid, right? Like, and I think that's the way that a lot of people thought about like, you know, anti-white type jokes for a long time. Like, oh, it's just, it's on the fringes. It's from minorities. They don't have much social power. It doesn't really threaten our status. Um, But it's different when it starts becoming a serious way to like organize public policy or, you know, billionaires are giving money to Abraham X. Kendi to promote this idea that like 
you know, every firm in America has to have some racial composition, even if it means like hiring or firing based on race. Like then it goes from being like, you know, kind of a harmless tertiary jokes out there on the fringe to where most people wouldn't mind it that much to where it can actually seriously like deprive someone of an opportunity or of liberty, or it can open up space for like real harassment or bullying or something like that. And I think that's where it goes from being fairly harmless to being, you know, somewhat harmful. And unfortunately, I think we are in a moment where it seems like we have a very strong reactionary pushback against like the last 50 or 60 years of, of like deracinating society of like, you know, promoting this fluid individualism as a means of identifying people. Uh, we are seeing a very fierce pushback to that. And I think part of the reason it's comfortable for people is because it gives them a way to organize themselves in the world. Um, I think that if you are, if you're watching the news right now, you're just reading about what's happening and particularly in like white collar firms or like, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of like working class white places happen, but more places where maybe people have graduated from elite colleges and have the critical theory gamut of ideas. I think this is a way to like get a promotion in a firm right now, right? Like you can claim that you are X skin color, therefore you have certain attributes or traits, uh, struggles that make you an asset, therefore you should earn a promotion. Or somebody who's white at the top shouldn't be there because they are white, right? Like I think this is it's a way, you know, people play with the tools that are given to them. And I think enough of this ideology kind of very rapidly ascended into particularly the elite spaces over the past few years that a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have been super drawn to it, um, because they didn't view it as super rational or they just didn't appeal to them. Now they see it as a way to make their arguments. They see it as a way to to pull rank, kind of right. Like it's almost like uh, valor. Like if you if you're thinking about like veterans of war, they have medals, right? Like you know, I'm from these four or five categories, therefore I have some sort of uh, you know special knowledge. I have some some struggles I've been through to where I'm owed this, you know, X, Y, or Z or whatever. Um, now that people have been given these tools, I think in a lot of these places you're going to see them play this game because that's what they're told to do. That's what they're given incentives to do. Uh, I don't think in most of the society people will be doing this because most people don't really think this way. But in the spaces that are, that are overwhelmed with the ideology we're talking about, like it seems almost a little bit like rational or straightforward to, to do it. Right. It, it seems like a, a particular kind of horse trading that is happening within elite circles. And actually, to go back to the valor point, I think you've said that um, there are certain circumstances in which it feels almost like people are using stolen valor. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, because um, the idea of stolen valor, I don't think anyone formalized that concept until the 1990s. I think somebody wrote, a, I want to say somebody wrote a book about it, but basically what they did is they argued that when you go through a war and you are part of some kind of valor service or you can earn medals, um, you get various uh, commendations, and people in American society in particular, because we have a standing army, uh, they tend to give high reverence to people who serve in the military. And so, you know, they might have a veteran's discount at a restaurant. You will tend to, if your town has a parade, the mayor may recognize you. Generally, people thank you for your service. Like, it's seen as, you know, you made these sacrifices for the country, so we need to honor you. Um, I think that what's happening with this idea that you need to declare your victimhood in some way. Because it's not just about the fact you're in a category. The category has to be seen as like something that gave you these struggles that put you through uh, you know, hell and back. 
you declare these categories and you declare the amount of victimhood associated with the category, therefore it gives you some kind of prestige or power or honor. And the reason I often call it like, I often refer to it as a form of stolen valor is because I'm, I feel like I'm seeing people who have not really struggled very much at all still declare themselves as having, you know, the medal, right? They've, they've been through the war, even though they haven't been through the war. So like, for instance, I think there are people who come from like ethnic or racial minority groups who happen to be doing very well. Maybe they're writers of the New York Times, maybe they're executives at, you know, Fortune 500 companies, but they're still declaring these things, right? They're still declaring that because they happen to be from this skin color, they are in this special persecuted position where they have to be shown deference, they have to be given various social privileges or power as a result. But the fact that they've reached those positions kind of, to me, demonstrates that their lives weren't that bad. Uh, they're actually doing very good. They may be the top 5 or 10% of their group, right? And that suggests that they are appropriating someone else's struggle and saying that it's their struggle just because they happen to share some quality with that other person. But the fact that they've reached that position in a power or in whatever hierarchy suggests that they didn't actually, you know, they're not in the same position. So, you know, you may be, it may be that somebody is, you know, African-American or Latino or, you know, they're Bangladeshi or Cambodian or whatever. They, they happen to be from a group that, on average, tends to be a little bit less wealthy in the United States, has less opportunities in the United States, but they're in a position where they have tons of opportunities, where they're getting, they have tons of fame and fortune, but they're still declaring themselves to be somehow subjugated or in a victim class because they happen to belong to a group that has a lot of people who legitimately are, but they, they themselves aren't. Um, but by declaring that they share that grouping that may be completely irrelevant, um, they can still get the valor of having survived those struggles, right? Or having be, or being in a struggling group, even if they themselves are not struggling. Um, and I think that's a lot of the difference between groups and individuals. Like, it can be the case that the average black person happens to be poorer than the average white person. But if you're a very rich black person, you're still better off than almost all white people as well as all almost all black people, right? Like, that's just how it works because the individual is not the same thing as the group. But if you can blur that distinction, you can be doing very well and still just clear yourself to be a victim. And that to me is what the stolen valor is, is because there are plenty of people who don't have fame and opportunity and riches and good health. Uh, there are plenty of legitimate victims in American society. Um, but if you're someone who's really made it, who's doing very well, and you're still declaring victimhood, to me, you're kind of stealing valor from people out there who really are in a very bad situation, um, who are all over the United States, who come from all kinds of backgrounds. And, you know, that's why I tend to not try to talk too much about, you know, I don't air my dirty laundry in public. I don't talk too much about any kind of struggle I had because I feel like I'm doing pretty decent today. I'd rather cede that space for people who are at the bottom of the social ladder rather than try to play up some, maybe something in my life that wasn't imperfect when I got to such a good place. So it, it makes me think of um, what recently happened in the New York Times with the Writers Union. Um, and they were asking for basically representation within the union that exactly mirrored the racial makeup of New York City. What they left out, though, was that they weren't asking for educational background equity or class equity or religious equity. And so in that way, regarding the, the stolen valor bit, it's like they were almost trying to stand on the shoulders of working class people who looked like them in an effort to take power in a rather elite institution like the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, it's, like I said, it, it's the tools that they're being given. Like, 
10 years ago, because we're seeing a surge in this ideology, even though it's a niche ideology that most Americans probably don't buy into, at least not all the way, because we're seeing a surge in this ideology right now in so many elite institutions, I think they just see that as the right thing to do to get ahead. I don't think 10 years ago, people would be making the exact same arguments from deference, right? They wouldn't be saying that their skin color alone qualifies them to some position. Their skin color alone means they've struggled and suffered so much, even if they don't have any real evidence of struggle or suffering in their background. Like, for instance, I think in, you know, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who I think is a, is a very good writer, and in, in many cases, I think he's much more sober than some of the people who are maybe espousing ideology, but like, he can write an entire book where maybe there's one or two instances where someone was actually kind of racist to him, right? Like, but it's like those one or two instances are elevated to this level that gives them authority and like power, right? Like it's not, it's, I, you know, he talks about how like one of his friends was, uh, I believe was shot by police. I don't know that he emphasizes very much that the police officer was African-American, right? Like it's not in the game that we're being told to play in this ideology. You're not, there are certain things you're supposed to emphasize and certain things that you're not supposed to emphasize. And if you're being told in this game that you have to always be on one side of this racial narrative in order for people to agree with you, in order for people to praise you, to get on your side, I think you're going to do that. And it's just, you know, it was really funny when the New York Times Union recently published a, they published, I guess, they, I don't know if it was an open letter. It was, I think it was a formal demand, but it somehow became public. They wanted to see their, um, racial demographics of staff reflect the racial demographics of New York City. Now, of course, the New York Times is not just a New York City paper. It's a national paper, so I don't know why they picked New York City, but someone pointed out that, well, okay, so they're only talking about racial demographics, but why aren't they talking about, like, religious demographics, you know? Isn't that also an important category? And that would mean that they would have to hire, like, you know, 6% of the New York Times would have to be, like, Orthodox Jews or something like that, right? Like, other people started pointing at, like, the reality that most people in New York City don't have a four-year college degree. Why not make the you know majority of the New York Times people without four-year college degrees, which of course would never happen. Um, I wrote about a study a couple of years ago that looked at the top editors and writers at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and found that like I think up to fifty percent of them came from like the most elite colleges in America, which is like I don't know the top twenty or thirty or something uh, by SAT score and and so on and so forth. So it's funny that they could be playing all those games instead. They could be talking about how they need to have more religious minorities of the New York Times, or they need to have a more reflective religious territory or a more reflective educational background or a more reflective any number of things, right? But the game that's being played right now is really is about race. And so that's the demand they make. And I think that's the demand they think will get, you know, the people they have in mind into those positions. Uh, they also don't never make a demand about ideological diversity, which is probably the single most important one, because it means people are thinking differently, meaning they'll produce different types of work. Um, for instance, like I think 50% of Latinos in America are generally opposed to abortion, but I never seen any, I never seen any active demand that like we need more like pro-life Latinos in our, in our organizations or in our newspaper or whatever, right? Because like, if you really wanted to be reflective of the Latino population in the United States, you need more like people who are generally critical or skeptical of abortion, um, primarily because it's such a Catholic population. But that's not the that's not the game we're playing. So you just don't you don't see that particular demand right now. Right. It's almost like they're trying to game the availability heuristic to make it appear as though there is a great deal of diversity of thought because when you look at the photo of the staff or when you're at a group meeting, everyone looks different and yet the way that they're asking for hiring to happen, the way that they're looking to organize their respective groups, like you said, they all tend to seek out people who think similarly to how they do. And so on the surface, they're going to appear quite diverse. 
But if no one is there who is from a, you know, perhaps a conservative or religious background or has more conservative or moderate views on things like abortion or other things, then it's actually going to be incredibly homogeneous because they're all going to think the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing is like diversity is actually it, it is a strength. I think there's this almost anodyne slogan saying it's a strength. In many ways, it is a strength. I even wrote about a study of esports teams and like esports teams that are more culturally diverse, meaning they have more players from different countries tend to do better in esports. And the reason the researchers suggest this might be the case is because people from different cultures tend to value different things. So like some might be more individualistic, some might be more communal. When you combine those things into a team, and actually you kind of have all your bases covered. So like, actually, it can be very, very powerful. But if you're trying to enforce a monoculture or just one culture of thinking, uh, then you're, you're stripping out a lot of the benefits you might get from multiculturalism, because multiculturalism is a benefit because people come with different life experiences. They come with different knowledge bases. They come with different cultural biases. They come with different philosophical beliefs. Uh, and that's what really makes diversity work. If you're trying to say everybody should look different, but think the same, then you're stripping out all the like really important like texture from diversity, the stuff that really makes it work, the, the stuff that really makes it thrive, that makes a diverse culture thrive. And I think that's really what people have to watch out for. Um, they may say we have X percent Latino, Black, Asian, Native American. But if all those people are enforced to think in one very particular way, then you're losing a, most of, I think, the benefits of that diversity. There are still some uh, some benefits just from the from the surface level optical diversity. For instance, it may be more welcoming, might normalize in people's minds the idea that people from different racial backgrounds can have those positions. For instance, I think when Barack Obama was elected, before he ever did or said anything, it was very beneficial to see that somebody who's not just purely white European American can be president of the United States. Like that's a very important barrier to break. Um, so there was that, but beyond that very, very narrow benefit of diversity, there are much bigger benefits to it, but those benefits require the idea that people have to be allowed to think differently and interact with people who, who think differently. So before we begin to wrap up and, and sort of figure out what a path forward is for our diversifying society, I was hoping you could touch on really quickly something that happened actually quite recently. Jack Dorsey the CEO of Twitter, donated $10 million to a foundation run by Ibram X. Kendi, who has famously proposed the passing of an anti-racist amendment to the Constitution. Now, you've said that this sort of proposal could eventually lead America down a path that would resemble Lebanon's. Could you help our audience understand what Kendi's proposed amendment would do and how this connects to Lebanon's current predicament? So Lebanon has what's called like a confessional and sectarian uh, political system where basically the prime minister has to come from one group. The the leaders in the parliaments, the, the basically positions in the government, you know, they have to be Shia uh, Muslim or Sunni Muslim or Druze, uh, which is Christian based. And they can't be anything else. Like they do this as basically a power sharing agreement between groups. So what happens is that people within those groups kind of organize as a political unit together. Like, you know, you'll have Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims are kind of set against each other for the same, you know, they're, they're set against each other politically because they're kind of assigned leaders by sect, right? It's not like, okay, I go to the ballot box and like my, the idea is that I'm going to be with the party I agree with most. It's going to be like, no, that's already kind of decided with me because my parents are Shia and I'm Shia and like, this is my sect, this is my tribe. We, we just have to defeat the other side, right? And I think Lebanon kind of formulated that agreement partially because there was this history of colonialism, there was a civil war, 
it was, you know, for I think for many people who adopted the system, and we've seen this in other countries as well, maybe it's something they do to kind of prevent or to stop a fight that's already kind of broken out. They do it to kind of as a as as a measure to, you know, the same thing happened in like, you know, the former Yugoslavia, which is broken up in different countries. Um, they they do this because they feel like they have no choice but to do it. But it's kind of admitting defeat once you've done that, because you're kind of accepting the idea that people, these people can't live together. They're not going to intermarry enough to where these differences are ever, uh, ever subside. They're not going to have mixed political parties. It's kind of an admission of defeat when you have adopted that kind of political system. And I think a lot of what Kendi talks about in terms of outright discrimination, you know, hiring quotas, firing quotas, setting up a government department of anti-racism that would enforce these kind of policies down onto the public. You know, he's kind of suggesting that these categories will always be the like number one thing that defines everybody and that we should encourage that and we should even formalize it within like the nature of the law. Uh, right now, like the Civil Rights Act prevents us from doing that. You cannot explicitly hire and fire people by race. You can maybe consider it to some extent, like the courts have allowed that, but you can't really like explicitly like just set racial quotas for who you have in your business or so on and so forth. And I think he's kind of promoting this idea that we should do that so that basically every firm would have certain, you know, racial composition that he considers to be fair. So that might mean like the thing of the New York Times, like a lot of what you hear is that it needs to be a certain, the staff should represent the population in terms of the, um, racial demographic makeup. So like, let's say uh, you have a city, it's 20% black, 80% white, you know, the firms should have the same makeup, you know, if you have a cake cake shop, it needs to be 20% black and 80% white staff working there. And the problem with this is that people don't just sort themselves out, you know, by these percentages based on what they want to do. Like, you know, I don't think, well, I have to, I want to go work at this company because it needs another person in my racial background uh, until they hit the quota. Um, and then, you know, if, if I happen, if there happen to be too many people of my people, uh, in this firm, someone needs to quit so that we can make a different, you know, abortion. Like people don't really think that way. And I don't necessarily think they should think that way. Um, I think it was Louisville. There were some protesters asking like a Cuban restaurant to hire more African Americans so that up until the whatever percentage of African Americans exist in that city. And it's just like, you know, a Cuban restaurant is a very specific cultural type of restaurant. Maybe. They just don't have a need for hiring more people right now. Maybe African-Americans didn't want to necessarily work at that restaurant. Like there are obviously times where people are discriminated against when they're, you know, they're not hiring specifically a race, which would be illegal by civil rights act. And they can be sued on that. Um, but, you know, I've also seen stories like I think it was in Oregon's uh, public, either one of the public broadcasters, I think, ran a story talking about how, uh, you know, 2% of Oregonians are African-American, but only 1% of the visitors to national parks to African Americans, and this was a statistic used to prove that the parks were like racist or whatever. And it's just like, you know, this is assuming that everyone always wants to do the same thing, that they're always arranging themselves to kind of meet these proportions. And if they aren't, something is like deeply wrong. Uh, it may just be that the amount of people that are interested in going to natural parks are not entirely the same in every culture, right? Like, I think to prove that an institution like that was racist, you would have to prove that they were doing something specifically to be unwelcoming to African-Americans or they were discriminating against them. If it just happens to be that people have different interests and cultures and histories and hobbies, I think that's fine. I don't think that everyone can be enforced into behaving exactly the same way or that, 
you know, and, and everything in life is going to be along some kind of racial proportion. Uh, I don't, you know, the national spelling bee tends to be dominated by Indian Americans. Like, I don't really know why. I don't know why that became a cultural obsession for people from India, but it kind of is, and they kind of almost always win. Uh, it's rarely ever a white person. And I don't know if, if how often any blacks or Latinos ever win it, but it's not, to me, I don't look at a situation like that and see an injustice because it's not as if anyone's being prevented from competing. It's not as if, you know, anything like that. It just happens to me. Maybe there's a different, you know, there's a different interest there. I wouldn't expect that if you went to the Apollo theater that, you know, you need to have 70% of white performers there or something, right? Because 70% of America at least is white. So like, you know, they're just, it's okay for us to have those differences in society. Um, I don't think we need to force people to be arranging by race. And I, unfortunately, I think if, if Kennedy really got what he wanted, he would be using government policy to enforce that. Uh, he has made very clear that he wants that to be the case. And I just don't think that's the right road to go down. I think that the best road to go down is to try to make sure that, one, we're enforcing anti-discrimination so that people aren't being discriminated against. They can do what they want. And then, two, to make sure that opportunity is spread to everyone so that more and more people have the opportunity to choose to do different things, maybe, than what they're doing right now. Uh, but that's very different than using government mandates to try to create strict equal outcomes or proportional outcomes. Uh, because I just don't think people are not all the same. You know, people have different interests. They have different skills, they have different hobbies, they have different cultures, different histories. And I don't think they would ever want to array. If, if we're forcing people to arrange that way by race, I think we'll be going, you know, we'll be going backwards. Everyone will be thinking about this all the time. It'll be the only thing they'll be identifying about themselves. Uh, and I, I just don't think that's where we want to go. So, Coleman Hughes uh, has said that, you know, if we wanted to, we could, we could arrange and slice people along any number of types of categorization and find disparities. If we compared the average earnings of a French American to a Russian American, there would be a 20 cent difference in terms of how much they make on the dollar per hour. And yet we don't because we have lumped all of them into the broader category of white and therefore made those differences invisible. And it seems like categorization on a, on a national scale seems to coalesce around whatever that society's sensitive or taboo subject is, right? In India, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's caste. In Ireland, for example, it was religion, you know, two sects of the same Christian religion, Protestants and Catholics. And in America, it's race. But in a way, our racial categories do speak to a certain sort of progress, right? Like white encompasses dozens of disparate ethnicities, and then so does Latino. Um, and then Asian does as well, right? I think uh, one of my Asian American friends once said to me, there are no Asians in Asia. And it took me a second, but I was like, oh, I guess I suppose that's right. There's, there's Chinese and Koreans and Japanese, but they don't all walk around saying they're Asian. And with the increasing number of African immigrants in America, even the category of black has expanded to include dozens of disparate ethnicities. And so while all of these broad racial categories have subsumed dozens, if not hundreds of conflicting and dislike ethnic identities, how do we path our way forward to subsuming our handful of remaining ones, right? We've got, I guess, basically five, black, white, Asian, Latino, indigenous. How do we subsume all of those in the same way that our racial categories have subsumed so many ethnic identities? How do we subsume our remaining racial identities into a single one? Is that even possible? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say. It may be that, you know, there isn't too much of a white racial identity in the United States. Maybe like, five or 10% of, of white Americans think of themselves strongly as white. You know, people generally psychologically identify along any number of other things. You know, they, you might be psychologically identified with your state, your region. Uh, some people 
psychologically identify with their occupation or their hobbies, it may end up going in that direction. I mean, generally, the way America has done this is it just has expanded the term white, right? Like it has said that if you were Irish, you were not considered white at one point. Some Jewish people were not considered white at some point. Um, I think that even I believe I saw a birth certificate of Kamala Harris because for some reason that became an issue uh, where her mother listed herself as Caucasian. Uh, even though her mother's from India, and I don't think anyone from India would really call themselves Caucasian today. The general way this has been approached is just to expand the category of white to everyone. Now, if the category of white is not desirable, you know, maybe increasingly it's viewed as like, you know, an oppressive category or so on and so forth. I'm not exactly sure how we would do that, but it does seem like it's very possible to just take a, to just take category and say everyone's that thing. And so we don't, you know, we, we have other ways of differentiating ourselves. I'm not sure what that would look like in the future, but it has definitely been done a lot in the past, as, as you just said, and as I said as well. So, Well, maybe I'm old school, but it would be amazing if we could return to a time when we all heavily identified with our state, <laughs> circa like the, uh, the 18th, 19th centuries. You know? Yeah, there, there are other problems with that, though, like, you know, like a civil war. So, you know, we, we have to watch out for that one as well. More now than ever, it seems. So the final question to wrap out our chat, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world right now that you would like to give more empathy to? Uh, is there a person or? Or a group or an organization. We all have our, uh, I guess you, you could say like uh, favored nations, I suppose, when we're talking about politics or culture or our side versus their side. And um, what I'm seeking to do even in my own life is whenever I find myself agreeing too much with one side or one group or whatever, I always try and step back and think, okay, well, am I not giving enough empathy to this other group? Am I straw manning them too much, right? Let's say. And so I, I guess it's just something that I'm trying to be mindful of. And I thought I would pose the question to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that I always try to understand, like, you know, why people feel so, I think particularly people who feel very intensely about politics, sometimes I, I, I start to see it as like fanaticism or something like that. But I, you know, I, I, I have to, you have to recognize one thing, which is that I think for a lot of people, politics has become a substitute for a religious type of feeling or a familial type of feeling or a communal type of feeling to where, you know, when I see someone and I think that they are just way too into this, you know, maybe their entire identity has become, you know, opposing Donald Trump or uh, entire identity has become some form of partisan identity or ideological identity. I have to, you know, I always have to remember that sometimes people are doing this because there's some need that's not being fulfilled for them. Like, you know, in Portland, there have been people who have been protesting and some people have been rioting for 80 days. And, you know, I talked to someone the other day who had been reported from there and they, they explained a little bit of it to me. And it does seem like a lot of people are doing this because, you know, there's a lockdown, there's COVID-19, they are not allowed to do anything else. They can't go to a concert. They can't go out and hang out with their friends at a club or anything. This is the only thing they can do. And I think for a lot of people, they're just trying to find some meaning in their life by doing this. Even if I find a lot of it to be quite, you know, uh, destructive or undesirable or immature, I have to understand that there's a reason they're doing it. Everyone who's doing something has a reason for doing it. And so it may be misguided. It may ultimately be relying too much. It may ultimately be relying too much on their blind, you know, not seeing their blind spots and so on and so forth. But they have a reason for doing what they're doing. So in general, I think, you know, I tend to have a lot of distaste for people who are political ideologues. But Sometimes having the ideology, trying to make sense of the world and having your group or your tribe uh, is, is, is a way for you to kind of cope with the, the fact that you're, you, otherwise you'd be very, very alienated. 
So in general, I think that would be for people. You know, I try to, to reconsider. So, Zed, thank you so much again for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you, and, and thank you for uh, giving such thoughtful answers. Thank you so much. 